There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 9th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Fine Gael are politically spent. Fianna Fáil have become a hollow husk. That's according to the leader of AIM2. Patrick Tobin used his leader's address to his party's Ordesh to attack the two main establishment parties over the weekend, saying AIM2 was established just four years ago and that it will break through in next year's local elections. Let's speak to Patter Toby now, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the programme, as always. You certainly weren't behind the door in criticising the work of almost every government department in your leader's speech. But tell us a, a little bit more about your political ambitions next year and what you mean when you say AIM2 will break through in 2024. How many seats are you hoping to deliver in the local elections? Well, first of all, it was a great Ordesh. We had about 400 delegates from all across the country in attendance. And we're, at the moment, aimed to that record membership. We have about 1,400 members across the state. And it was very clear that we have built a well-organized challenge to the establishment uh, currently. Um, And our plan for the next local election, we've put in place about 33 candidates for those elections. We'll probably top out, I'd say, about 50 candidates. But we're also going to run in the European elections uh, for the first time in the South and in the North West. We've already selected a candidate for Ireland South, a man by the name of Patrick Murphy. Uh, he is the head of South and Southwest Fisheries. He's the guy that helped organise the flotilla of boats that went out to the Russian ships off the Southwest uh, of Ireland uh, a number of months ago. Um, and you know, what we've done over the last four years, we've been busy, is that we have selected local area reps. They have got invested themselves into the you know, the bread and butter issues, the concerns of local communities around the country. They have been at the head of their hospital campaigns, at the head of campaigns to get a guard station in their area, you know, in relation to fixing issues such as roads uh, as well. So these are already well-known community activists that we've played. We believe we have a good chance of getting many of those elected uh, in 2024. So we do believe that AIM2 will make mm. the breakthrough 
uh, in 2024. Okay, you've a, a lot of work to do though and I'm sure you'll accept that uh, and that quite often AIM2 is listed amongst the group of independents. There's no doubt um, that we have a lot of work to do but it, look, look at it like this, um, you know, AIM2 is the only party in the world without any uh, state funding and we don't get the telly time, for example, other parties like uh, Labour Party or people before profit get. And yet in all of the polls uh, that we see over the last number of months, we are either at level pegging with those political parties in terms of the polls or we're out polling them. And mm. even in the last general election... But uh, you have one TD, namely yourself, which is why you're sometimes lumped in with independence. I suppose that the point is we are... Uh, definitely uh, boxing uh, way above our, our, our weight currently in terms of reach into the public domain, in terms of connecting with people. And I think that's one of the things that AIM2 has really kind of uh, built over the last while is the ability to speak in common sense terms about real issues facing people. So, for example, right through the summer, we have been the party that has been raising the cost of living crisis. And the cost of living crisis was a major issue at our at our Ardesh recently. You know, we saw the government increase the level of excise at the start of June on, on petrol and diesel. They did it again at the start of September. They're about to do it at the end of October as well. They're also looking to increase the, the carbon tax in October, and they, re, they, they increased the tolls on the roads uh, in, in, in July as well. So we know that we have a government that speaks in measured tones about how sympathetic it is to people who are living in economic mm. crisis. And yes, they're the, the party that's actually jacking up the cost of fuel for people uh, in their daily lives. Which you described as highway robbery, but I I think at the same time we're going to hear from the government uh, that they're going to defer the restoration of uh, the excise uh, duties in uh, tomorrow's budget. Uh, But uh, when you were talking to your delegates uh, over the weekend, you likened the leader of Fianna Fáil, Micheál Martin, to Jack Lynch, uh, which I I don't think Micheál Martin would have any problem with whatsoever, uh, although I don't think it was meant to be a compliment, was it? No, the, the reason why we, we made that comparison was the north of Ireland is in its probably its worst state in at least 25 years. Um, and actually, in, in actual fact, we have a situation currently where there's no democracy in the north, where democracy has been suspended. And I made the point that democracy is actually a human right. It's not something that can be turned on and off like a tap. People are entitled to it. And uh, we have had the, the De- Democratic Unionist Party undemocratically uh, stopping the functioning of the Stormont Assembly, which is an incredible thing. And as a result, mm. we've had hospital services, health services, education, roads, transport, even Loch Ness. Everything is getting worse uh, in the North at a serious rate. And we see the British go through with the uh, the legacy bill, a bill that you know, gives an amnesty for people who have murdered uh, innocent individuals in the North of Ireland. And yet, when I asked the, the Irish government to stand up against that, to go to the European Court of Human Rights and, and bring the, the British to the European Court of Human Rights to reverse that law. The I'm just losing, I'm l- losing you there, Padre. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if uh, you've turned the phone or what the problem is, but uh, the sound quality went there. Uh, I'm sorry, you were saying that you'd ask the Irish government to take legal action. That's something that the government I- I- is considering, isn't it? Yep, the government is considering it for the last, um, I would say, year or two at this stage. And, and even when we raised it during the bill going through Westminster, the government said we won't make a decision until the bill is completed Westminster. So now the bill has completed Westminster, and I raised it with the, the tonnage that just last week, 
And he said, we might do it. We maybe do it. Mm. If this happens, we, we might go ahead. And, you know, we're just making the point that, you know, standing up for the rule of law, standing up for justice and truth, standing up for victims shouldn't be a point of equivocation. It should be the all-consuming uh, instinct of a government with a backbone. And it's quite clear that this government doesn't have a backbone when it comes to uh, issues like the Tory party. And, and that's why we likened the Fawnish to, to Jack Lynch, because Jack well, Lynch you saw, you saw. famously said he wouldn't stand idly by and then did just that. Yeah, but you saw the reaction of Chris Heaton-Harris uh, when Leo Fradker made comments uh, about a, a united Ireland and that Ireland is opposed to the legacy bill and may take legal action. Uh, you can really uh, make enemies very quickly when discussions and negotiations are as delicate as they are. The Irish government has left the British government in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that it's opposed to the legacy bill. It's left the government uh, in no doubt that it, it may take action to the European Court of Justice uh, and... Uh, the British government is fully aware of that. Uh, Why why throw it in the face of of, uh, people like that? Because, for example, the the Irish uh, government, unfortunately, have a very, very, uh, I would say, uh, cap-tipping instinct when it comes to the Tory party uh, in London. So, for example, in the middle of the protocol crisis, when the British looked like they were going to renege from the, the protocol, the European Union simply threatens legal action, and the British government backed down. Unfortunately, the British government don't understand the nuances of diplomacy or talk or, 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 or conversations. What they understand is countries standing up to when they're doing wrong. And, and the Irish government has refused to ever stand up to the British government. And, and indeed, it, it allows for the European Union to fight the corner of, of this country in terms of, of the protocol and the Windsor framework. And just we need a stronger government, a government that can actually talk tough uh, to the Tory party uh, in London. And, you know, there's other issues that come up at the Ordesh, for example, was a lot of the bureaucracy, uh, a lot of the waste, uh, a lot of the red tape that exists in the public sector in this country. We support the public sector 100 percent, but we need to we need to reform the public sector so we don't have this waste. And we, we raised the issue that I to found out about a couple of weeks ago where 3,500 local authority homes remain empty today in the jaws of, of a national housing crisis. It takes, on average, eight months for those homes to be turned around and relet. Yet, in the private sector, it takes only three weeks mm. for those homes uh, to be turned around and, and relet. So why is it that the public service and the public sector is taking so long to do very basic things? And if you want to see an example of that, obviously, that's the National Children's Hospital. So if we want to be able to provide public infrastructure in this country, we need to start to reform the way we deliver it in a manner that actually doesn't swallow up massive amounts of of time, energy and money and get services to people when they need them. All right. Your comments echo the sentiments of many other political parties in uh, the country. uh, And you undoubtedly are trying to carve out a unique identity for AIM2. Some would say that up to this point, you've been successful in that, in... Uh, people feeling that AIM2 is for Sinn Féin supporters who are staunch Catholics uh, because of uh, abortion. Sinn Féin minus uh, abortion. Uh, Next year, I take it, you're going to use the opportunity of the referendums on women in the home uh, and indeed gender identity uh, as another way of marking out your uh, territory, uh, letting people uh, identify with you, particularly right-wing staunch Catholics. Well, first of all, I would absolutely uh, disagree with you wholeheartedly there, as you would expect. Um, 
Ainsu is a pluralist Republican political party. We believe that everybody's equal in this country, and we believe that everybody should be able to be who they are to their full extent. And actually, we know, we recognise that there are different value systems in Ireland, and we understand that a pluralist system is the best way to accommodate different values uh, that exist in Ireland. We want everybody, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, dissenter, or atheist, to be able to be equal and be able to be who they are in this country. I would actually say, in fairness, people would have to agree that we've actually carved out a very different space uh, than Sinn Féin over the last number of, of years. So, for example, we've been leading the debate in terms of the crime and antisocial behaviour uh, crisis that's happening in Ireland. We've been leading the charge uh, against um, the government's lack of, of function here. We, we, it's our questions to the minister that have highlighted the the, the very clear correlation between the rise in crime that's happening and the fall of the number of Gardaí, but also the number of deaths that are happening in the road and the fall in the number of Gardaí in the country. And when Sinn Féin were quiet on the hate speech bill, initially when that went through the doll, it was up to Ain Tu to fight uh, for the idea that we should live in a liberal democracy where people are entitled to respectfully engage uh, on issues. And interestingly enough, after voting against uh, in voting in favour of the hate speech bill in the Dáil, Sinn Féin flipped and voted against it in the Shannon. So, you know, we have been a, a rock-solid North Star uh, political party in terms of issues that are important in a liberal democracy, and we'll stay there. And uh, we're not going to go with the the prevailing woke winds uh, when they blow. We will we'll stand up for liberal democracy 100%. Mm, uh, and against uh, transgenders? No, well, look, and again, transgender we rights. Pe- we believe that people who uh, identify as transgender should be respected, should be supported, um, and are equal members of the society and should be valued. But we also believe that, that there is a balance of rights. Constitutionally well. equal? Oh, absolutely. There's everybody in the country is constitutionally equal, 100%, in every single case. There's, there's no doubt about that. But remember this. It's also important that we follow science and that we uh, follow the law. The National Gender Clinic uh, in Ireland is populated with professors and medics and doctors who are the most invested in this space, who actually help people transition at, at certain times, who follow the science, and they say that the government is actually... Uh, allowing its policy be dictated to by activist groups themselves. They've gone on radio and said that the government is actually being brainwashed by activist groups. So what we're saying is that women should have safe spaces. They should be able to use safe spaces. Women should be able to play sports for women uh, only. People should be able to say that men can't get pregnant and not feel that that is, is, is hate speech. And also we need to make sure that education in school is age-appropriate um, and and, and science-based. And there's a big backlash against the government's mm. uh, perspective on this in the last number of years. And indeed, we're seeing many other European countries... Well, there's a, a small amount of people who are shouting very loudly, I think, rather than it uh, being accurately described well, as a, polls, a big, but, uh, big backlash. But you say everyone is equal in the way it sounds in Animal Farm. Everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. If you look at the polls, first of all, there's a Red Sea poll that asked, should male-born sex offenders be put into female prisons? And the vast majority of people said no. Into is the only party currently that has that uh, policy. Also, another Red Sea poll said, should children at the age of 8, 9 and 10 be taught about transgenderism? The majority of parents said no. Again, Into is the only political party that upholds uh, that view. So in actual fact, in many areas, we're far more in tune with the majority of people 
than actually the government. And I would say that the government, unfortunately, thinks that the electorate is... The but that, that, that doesn't make the argument that everyone is equal. That makes uh, it no, right no. to follow a populist viewpoint. Uh, while you're with us, uh, can I just ask you uh, about uh, Narconon? Uh, and uh, the drug centre that uh, was planned in Beliver. Uh, I read about this in uh, the Sunday Independent, uh, Ali Bracken reporting uh, that there's no sign of movement in it. Uh, and you're quoted in that article as saying uh, it may never open. Yeah, so obviously the people will, will remember that when the Church of Scientology moved into Beliver, when they bought over a, a, a badly needed uh, nursing home and changed its purpose, there was obviously a lot of anger in the Beliver area that this had happened. Um, and, you know, people will also remember that there's a lot of controversy in Narconon's delivery of uh, their service. They delivered, they say, a residential rehabilitation service for people with drug addictions. Uh, people with drug addictions are obviously some of the most vulnerable people in, in the world because obviously they're in a very bad state and they need help. And a question that I put into the Minister for Health a number of years ago asked the question, was there any medical evidence that the Narconon delivery of their services uh, helped the, um, the, the, the patients in any way? And the minister said, no, there's no evidence. And so we have been very clearly stating that there should be regulation in Ireland. Right now, you and me, Michael, could set up a, a residential drug rehabilitation centre. We could deliver pretty much any treatment we wanted and the government would take no interest in it. There would be no HICWA or HSE regulation of it whatsoever. And that's wrong. So we have been calling steadily for the last four years for regulation in this space. As it happens in Beliver at the moment, there doesn't look like there's actually clients in it. There are people living there. There are deliveries of food uh, going in nearly on, a, on a, every second day currently there. And I'm not sure exactly what the holdup is from their perspective. Is it that they have, their business model is not working? The people are not willing to shell out the massive amounts of money necessary to be able to sit in a sauna and take high levels of vitamins in, in their locations. Um, but it, it, the truth of the matter is this issue is a bigger issue just of the current Beliver situation. And the government needs to get real. The government needs to regulate that space to make sure um, that um, people who are addicted to drugs are helped. And the other point I would say too, and this fits in with the, the crime and antisocial behaviour issue, is right now uh, in me there are no youth residential drug rehabilitation beds at all. So if you're a youngster and you are addicted to drugs and you want to get off drugs, there's actually no facilities, you know, that are backed by the HSE and by medicine there to help you get off those drugs. So we have a very laissez-faire attitude to people who suffer from drug addiction, unfortunately, in this country. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Founder and leader of AIN2, Patter Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Women's Aid is launching its four-week hashtag Two Into You awareness campaign today to highlight the impact of intimate relationships abuse against young people. Tomorrow is World Mental Health Day and to coincide uh, with both 
days, Women's Aid is releasing uh, the findings of a survey of some 500 women aged between 18 and 25, which shows that 44% of young women subjected to intimate relationship abuse have experienced suicidal thoughts. Let's speak to Mary Hayes, who's the project lead of the hashtag to into you for Women's Aid. And a very good morning to you, Mary, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Were you surprised by that finding? It really is a staggering amount of people who fall into the same cohort to have had suicidal thoughts. Apologies, I got cut off there. I missed your question. I beg your pardon. I was asking about the findings of your survey uh, that 44% of young women uh, who've experienced domestic violence uh, or or relationship abuse have experienced suicidal thoughts. Are are you surprised by that finding? Oh, I take it that means that we've uh, a problem with the phone line uh, because uh, Mary had said uh, that uh, she missed the first question because the line dropped out. I take it that probably is or possibly is what has happened again. We'll try to get Mary Hayes back on uh, the line with us uh, today because uh, it's a shocking finding, but it's also a very uh, important campaign, particularly for young people and in particular for young women uh, who may end up uh, being treated badly in a relationship. I'm told we have Mary Mary Hayes back online. Mary, good morning again and thank you for coming back to us and apologies. I'm not sure what's wrong with our phone lines. Uh, There's obviously some uh, problem leading to them falling out on you like that. Uh, But I was asking you about the finding of uh, that survey. 44% of young women who've had uh, bad relationship uh, abuse problems have experienced suicidal thoughts. Uh, Are you surprised by that finding? Um, unfortunately, uh, we're not surprised by this. You know, from our research, we know that abuse against young women in particular is very common in Ireland. So of that 18 to 25 age cohort, one in five young women has been um, subjected to abuse by a current or former male partner. And then uh, what's become clear from those findings is, you know, really the severe mental health impact that abuse can have on young women. So we saw things coming through like um, low self-esteem, anxiety, depression, isolation, post-traumatic stress disorder, and then those high figures around suicidal ideation and attempted suicide. So really it just goes to show that abuse can have a really um, severe and long-lasting impact on young women, especially if it's their first relationship. You know, they have nothing to compare it to and those behaviours have become really normalised so they can be quite distressing and frightening for Mm. a young woman. Okay, and they can be all-consuming. You tell how that can happen uh, through relaying some of Orla's story. Maybe you could uh, tell our, our, our listeners about Orla and her experience. Yeah, so Orla was in a relationship um, when she was 17 with um, an older boy. And I suppose the biggest thing to take from her story is that she began to become very isolated from her friends and family. So her ex would say things like, you know, you you shouldn't be spending time with your friends. You should be spending time with me and making it difficult for her to spend time with people outside of the relationship. And this is a common tactic that we see in course of control. Because in, in a course of controlling relationship, your partner will try and make it difficult for you to have support systems outside of the relationship. And it makes you become very reliant on your partner. 
um, because you feel like, you know, they're the only person you have, they're the only support you have, and you feel like if you leave them or if you break up with them, that you will have no one, you will have nothing, because that's what your partner has made you feel like. Um, and some of the other things that we see as well is around monitoring, you know, monitoring behaviours, monitoring movement. Mm. Um, so sending constant text messages to check up on you to see where you are, what you're doing. And this is something that would be seen in Orla's story as well, you know, um, messages online, things like that, and feeling like you're always um, having to keep your partner up to date on, you know, who you're seeing, things like that. So very, very controlling behaviours. Mm, controlling, uh, it's a, a power battle, uh, taking ownership, objectifying somebody uh, and the impact that it has on somebody when they are objectified. You can understand people feeling useless, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. It completely is a, a knock to your self-esteem. And emotional abuse is by far the most common form of abuse against young women. So, you know, often there's this assumption that abuse has to be physical. There has to be a mark there or a bruise. But we know that um, emotional abuse is very, very common. So of those one in five young women who were abused, nine in ten had experienced emotional abuse. Um, and young women, they have said to us um, many times, that emotional abuse is the thing that sticks with them even after they've left the relationship. Mm. So it can really, really um, knock your self-esteem, your confidence, uh, your ability to just move freely throughout the world and make you know, decisions about yeah. your own life. Yeah, to live uh, as uh, I think any of us should expect to live. Uh, but that uh, emotional bruise manifesting in things like depression or anxiety, post-traumatic stress or, or suicidal ideation. Uh, and you're highlighting this uh, ahead of World Mental Health Day, which is uh, tomorrow. But you also start your Two Into You campaign. This is a, a, an annual campaign directed predominantly at young women uh, because prevention is better than cure, I take it. So to prevent uh, the experience from happening to you rather than suffering from it in in the way that you've just explained. Absolutely. So with the Two Into You campaign, we're trying to teach young people the difference between healthy and unhealthy relationships. We want them to learn about the red flags, you know, the kind of early warning signs of abuse early on so that they're able to recognize them before things become really bad. But we also want them to know that if they are in a situation, you know, if they're in a a relationship and something feels slightly off at all, that there are supports available for you. So we have a dedicated website for young people. It's twointou.ie. And on the website, there's a number of resources and there's supports as well. So there's things like a relationship quiz that you can take to see if your relationship is healthy There's also a free and confidential chat service there if you're worried about your own relationship or even a friend's relationship. And, of course, people can also contact the Women's Aid uh, 24-hour national free phone helpline on 1800-341-900 as well as they can support. Very good. Mary, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That Women's Aid 24-hour national free phone number is 1-800-341-9800. Our thanks to Mary Hayes, project lead of uh, the Two Into You campaign. That's hashtag Two Into You uh, that is underway from today over the next four weeks uh, that is being organised by Women's Aid. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, a spokesperson for the Israeli Defence Forces said that uh, Hamas's cross-border attack into Israel has resulted in the 
by far the worst day in Israeli history. Never before have so many Israelis been killed uh, by one single day on one one single thing on one day, uh, saying uh, it was 9-11 and Pearl Harbor all wrapped into one. This is a massive terrorist attack that is gunning down Israeli civilians in their towns, in their homes, and as we've seen so graphically, literally dragging people across the the border with Gaza, including a Holocaust survivor in a wheelchair, women and children. That's the American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. The Irish anti-war movement has issued a statement saying that there should be no surprise as to why Palestinians may want to attack Israel and sadly even kill and maim Israeli settler civilians. Let's speak to Glenda Camino, member of the Irish anti-war movement steering committee. And a a very good morning to you, Glenda, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Are are you saying uh, that uh, the Hamas attack can be justified? Well, we are opposed to violence. However, what's happening now is the result of the oppression of Palestinians, the treating them as people who are less than human, the murder of children. We don't hear about this in the mass media. We only hear about what happens in Israel. And while every Israeli death is a tragedy, so is every Palestinian death. And the Palestinian deaths have escalated in this year. Um, we never hear on the mass media, for example, in August 2022, five children were killed by an Israeli rocket while they were visiting the grave of their grandfather, who was killed earlier. This kind of thing has been going on. Invasions, increased numbers of civilian deaths, um, people have no security, the increased uh, development of settlements to surround and take over and isolate Palestinians, the fact that Gaza has been an open prison, and people can't leave, people can't have a normal life, mm. even though they try. All of these things have led to this. If we actually pointed out um, on a PR um, paper on the 11th of May, 2021, that if uh, they kept escalating their attacks on, on the Palestinians and the ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem and the, um, the way that Palestinians were being harassed, that it would result in another Israeli Hamas war. And I'm afraid that's what happened, and that's what we have to stop. Man, well, well we here, here we are, but I, I mean, can there be any justification for what Hamas ha- has done? I mean, the idea of taking hostages surely is uh, apparent to you. The indiscriminate killing that has gone on over the weekend, yes. the uh, attack on concert goers. I, I mean, these are, are... I know, these are these are terrible things. These are war crimes, are they not? I presume that they are war crimes, but there are war crimes on the other side that should have been investigated, that have not been investigated. Um, there was a proposal in December 2022 that they were going to be investigated, Israel's war crimes, which go on every day mm. against the Palestinians. I know, but two wrongs don't make a right, do they, Glenda? No, two wrongs don't make a right. And what we are calling for is de-escalation on both sides, a ceasefire. At the moment, like last night, 500 bombs fell all over Gaza. Mm. And people in Gaza may be warm, but they have nowhere to go. Well, that They're is... that is as a, a, But that is as a direct result of the actions of Hamas, which really has let its people down. I, I mean, how on earth did they think that Israel would not retaliate? I don't think they thought Israel would not retaliate. And I don't can't speak for what Hamas thinks. But what I believe is happening is they have been abused and oppressed, and so many people being killed, um, children, thousands of prisoners uh, in Israeli jails or hostages, 
this has been going on for so long that people are desperate. They're hopeless. They feel if they're going to kill us day by day, you know, invading refugee camps, if they're going to make our lives impossible to live, mm. we might as well, you know, fight back. Like if the bully in the schoolyard punches a kid in the nose every day or a year, after a while, that kid's going to go and organize his friends and it's going to fight back. But we are against escalation. We want the ceasefire. We want peace negotiations to give a just peace for the Palestinians. And what we're getting is the opposite. Biden has sent more munitions. American warships supporting Israel are there. Mm. And all this is, could lead to like a, an even larger complication. The likelihood that it would include other parties, such as Iran and the U.S., even if by proxy, is great. So, no, this shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. But we've been warning about the fact that it could happen for a couple of years. And uh, there seems to be no end to Israel's plans for revenge and reprisals. They've cut off electricity to Gaza. We hope all of the hostages will not be hurt. We are not for violence and pain and hurting people. And it is a tragedy that so many people were attacked and killed mm. and, and wounded on both sides. But usually what happens is the Israeli attacks on Palestine result in large numbers of casualties. These are hardly reported. If, the, if there's a one rocket comes from, from Gaza to Israel, it's, and even no one's hurt, it actually gets lots of news coverage. So the fact is, we need both these sides to live in peace together. But they can't live in peace when one is the oppressor of the other one. And the oppressor of Palestine is Israel. It's neo-fascistic government has made, made it very clear they want to eliminate their so-called enemy. And they're making an enemy out of people who could be friends if they were treated with any kind of justice, with any kind of respect and fairness. But uh, I'm sure and, you've been hearing about Kim Dante, a 22-year-old Irish girl at that concert on Saturday, on the phone to her brother saying, don't know what to do. Next of all, uh, Palestinians are, are, are shooting concert goers down like ducks, she said, and she hasn't been heard of since. I know, that is terrible. And my heart goes out to the family and the family of all the Israelis who have had, had to suffer in this. But they have to look to their own government. Just as in the U.S., we have to look to the government of the United States. Like, we are planning an emergency solidarity rally today at 5.30 outside the door. When I say we, I mean a number of organizations and everyone who supports Palestinians can come. This doesn't mean that we approve of the violence against the Israelis, but we don't want to see more people die by reducing Gaza to rubble, as the Israeli government proposes to do now. Mm. And it's very hard to envisage anything else, though. I mean, we're talking about uh, one of uh, the mightiest armies in the world that has really been uh, put to task by Hamas because of, of uh, the actions. This is not going to bode well, is it? Oh, no, no, it's not. But I feel that the government brought it on itself by, like, increasing the um, harassment, the enclosure, the knocking down of Palestinian houses, the murder of children. You know, many, many people were shot and killed in, in Palestinian areas, mm. not for doing anything, just for being there, just for being in the front of a gun. Um, there was a Palestinian refuge, uh, representative in Ireland who I spoke to one time. He'd been shot in the arm as a five-year-old child. The soldier just looked at him and shot him in the arm. 
could have shot him in the heart. No, the thing is, violence has to stop. War is not a means of solving any problems. War itself is a crime. That's why the Irish anti-war movement is against war. And we have called along with people before Prophet USI, the TCD Student Union, the Trinity BDS movement. We are calling for people to come out and demand equality and justice, not just for the Palestinians but for the Israelis. The Israelis cannot have a proper peace themselves until the Palestinians have their own peace. And you're you're asking people to meet with you at half past five at Leinster House today? At the door, that's correct. Okay, that's uh, uh, this evening uh, if uh, people do wish to attend that rally. Thank you very much. And please please understand that we don't want any more people to be hurt. Israelis are, are Palestinians and a wider war will just involve more people in chaos. We can't afford this at a time of climate crisis. Mm, I know, it's really uh, frightening beyond belief at, at this stage. Dana, thank you indeed. indeed. Half past five at Leinster House, as you say, if people want to join with you to call for peace this evening. Glenda Camino, member of uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee there. Now, uh, we did mention the situation that Kim Dante is in. Let's hear from her mother, Jennifer, who has been speaking to ABC News. Kim didn't realise that there was like seven or eight Toyota vans full of terrorists and they just shot everywhere. They just shot them, slaughtered them like ducks. And that's the reason I'm here. Because I want the world to condemn this behaviour. I didn't bring my children up to hate anybody. Can you try and just describe what it's like waiting for news? You can't sleep. All I can think about is where she is, if she's suffering. If she's still alive, I just want her back. So many other mothers here today. I'm not the only one. Everybody is missing somebody. Now, that's uh, Jennifer Dante. She was uh, speaking uh, to James Longman in Israel for ABC News. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658, 0861800658, or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, much of uh, tomorrow's budget has been announced or brought to us uh, via links uh, through uh, the media over the course of the last few days in particular, but other parts of it have not yet been agreed. Let's speak uh, to Neve Griffin, health correspondent with uh, the Irish Examiner. A very good morning to you, Neve. Thanks for joining us. Are, are you surprised at all at how difficult it appears for ministers uh, to agree next year's health budget? Uh, no, good morning, Michael. Um, no, we're not actually. When we've been look, when you look at the figures, we had um, the HSE CEO Bernard Gloucester was in front of the Health Committee recently, and he said that de- the cash pressure for the HSE by December will be around 1.1 billion. So there, despite what what patients may feel, there, there is um, an overspend going in in an effort to tackle the growing waiting lists and and get pe- care to people. Um, so no doubt there's requests going in for an, for quite a significant um, bailout. Could you say bailout? Is that the right word? Uh, to make sure that that maybe doesn't happen next year again. It's an awful lot of money. Uh, and that's on top mm-hmm. of what, about 24 billion that was allocated in funding? Yes. 
yes, it's okay. not a small budget. Mm. So uh, the HSE are arguing that this is linked still to the pandemic, that people are more people are sick than were expected. The population has grown and that people are still, doctors would say, still coming forward um, having delayed care over the last few years, so they're they're more ill by the time they get to the to the doctor. Mm. A, a silly question, maybe, but are, are these budgets flexible? I mean, when the government allocates twenty four billion euro to health services, it's an awful lot of money. Uh, does the HSE or the Minister for Health, uh, for that matter, uh, feel that they can push it a bit, uh, or, or they, there's no need to take it as seriously as a, a definitive budget? Um, well, it's a fair question, Michael, when it comes to health. There's a supplement, I mean, in every year that I can recall, someone might text in to say that I'm wrong about that. But mm. uh, as far as I know, that, that's that been the case. Um, it, it's it's the, the HSE would, would say that they are that they do manage their money, that they are effective. Although, again, Bernard Loster has said that, that he's looking at that and they're looking at ways of cutting back, I think, particularly around agency spend and external consultancy spend. Um, they're looking at that, but then there's also pressures. You've you've probably seen the Section 39 care agencies, which are funded by the HSE, are going on strike for pay parity. So that that's a huge demand that will be going in there. And we still have um, hundreds of thousands of people on waiting lists, despite all of this money being spent on care. Okay, so uh, presuming they make savings, uh, will 24 billion be uh, enough next year, or do you need? 24 billion plus the 1 billion they've overspent and 1 billion extra because they should have had 25 billion last year. And then do you need another billion to take inflation into account? Well, that is, that, what's that question? How long is a piece of string? I mean, the interesting thing, I suppose, when you look at the budgets across Europe, the OECD would say that we do spend um, quite highly on health. So maybe the issue is where we're spending it on. And they're trying to move, I suppose, at the moment away from reactive health to preventative to try and get to people early so that because obviously it's it's to be, I mean, really economic, just money focused about it. It's cheaper to treat people in the earlier stages of illness rather than people being identified later. Um, but that's a slow process. It's going to take a long time to turn around. And probably this afternoon, Stephen Donnelly is in talks again about the budget. Um, so I don't think he's going to be looking, you know, he's going to be looking at what, he, what they need right now, not what they need in five years' time. And I suppose he'll be arguing that they need more than they got last year, which is why mm-hmm. they overspent. And all of that money, no doubt, was spent very wisely and resulted in very good care for hundreds of thousands of people in the country and there is no doubt about that but of course there's all the problems that the health service has as well and hospital overcrowding and trolleys. We saw the worst year last year. If it doesn't get increased spending, are we going to see levels similar to that at a minimum? Well, they're they're saying not and Bernard Loster again has said that this year will be different, that they're trying to work, I suppose, outside the hospital. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And get to people early and move people into the best the best kind of care. So he has pledged we won't see that horrific figure of 900 that we saw one day in January. Um, how linked that is to getting what they want in the budget is, I suppose, the, the key question for them today. And they, they seem to be from um, my colleague Elaine Lachlan is reporting there that they're negotiating um, today. So it's it's really going right down to the wire in those efforts to get what they, they say they need. Mm. And the targets uh, that they've set for the next year, uh, I think, um, whilst they may be better than what people have experienced, uh, they didn't go down well, certainly not with opposition parties uh, that instead of hearing regularly that there would be 500 or 900, uh, as you said, one day in January, people waiting on trolleys to be admitted to hospitals, uh, that there'd be no more than 320 people. But that's a, a lot of people uh, and they also are hoping that nobody over the age of 75 will have to wait more than 24 hours. 24 hours is an awful long time to have to wait in a hospital to be seen. Yeah there was big controversy over that so the HSE were pushing those numbers as you say and saying you know that based on how awful last winter was we're setting these targets as an improvement where the opposition parties were saying well could you be a little bit more ambitious we should be striving to say that no one of any age should be waiting 24 hours for a trolley, that that should be considered um, beyond the pale, because doctors will tell you the longer you wait past, um, I think it's six hours on a trolley, the, the worse your outcome is going to be. So um, it, it's, it's a tricky one, really, because mm. the more they promise, I suppose we'll hold them to the promise. But they have said that this winter will not be as bad as last winter, despite the continued growth in population. So we'll just have to wait and see, I think. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, how, how they the afford it. Is if, yeah, who's going to pay for yeah, it? Yeah, uh, and, and what will give if the funding isn't increased on? Uh, will some of the, the existing services or some of uh, the new services uh, that are, are being planned uh, be shelved? Well, that, that's definitely a concern. You probably saw um, Forza last week launched a work to rule for their managerial um, members who work in the HSE because they, they've, there's a recruitment pause for the rest of the year, or uh, possibly for the rest of the year, on uh, that particular rate of staff. And they're saying that they can't go forward on projects if there's vacancies in those projects. So we're seeing the impact of the cutbacks already. Mm. And we need an awful lot more staff, don't we? I mean, the plans are to Mm -hmm. recruit an awful lot more people. An additional 1,500 hospital beds, new elective hospitals and six surgical hubs. And all of those need to be staffed, let alone be realised in themselves. Yeah, oh, definitely. It sounds great, actually, when you list it all out like that. 
but they, I mean, 1,500 beds and then each bed needs specialized, needs nurses. And if some of those beds are ICU nurses, are ICU beds, you need ICU nurses and double the number of nurses per ICU bed as you need for a bed. So people like the, the nurses union, the INMO would tell you a bed is just a piece of furniture hmm. without the staff around it. And that's really what makes it a hospital bed as opposed to, you know, what you or I would have in our own homes. Yeah. Um, and the same with the surgical hubs. And the, one of the reasons for the waiting list, the doctors would say, is that there's um, hundreds of posts which are either vacant or filled by locums, by temporary doctors. Um, so it's very hard to work off a waiting list if you don't have the doctors to, to see the patients. So all of that needs to be addressed and all of that costs money. All right. And this 1.1 billion overrun uh, is uh, an estimate. Uh, we heard uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago that could rise to as much as 2 billion euro. Uh, and it's making a lot of uh, the decisions uh, that the ministers are, are looking at now all the more difficult before they make their announcements uh, for mm-hmm. next year. It's a headache that they could do without, uh, I'm sure they would feel. Uh, have you any uh, idea uh, what that means for Stephen Donnelly's relationship with his colleagues? Well, I suppose Stephen Donnelly and Heather Humphrey and Roderick O'Gorman seem to be the three people in the firing line with like health carers and, and children and um, people with disabilities. So there's a lot of very vulnerable groups across, being cared for across those three departments. So in a way, I suppose it's no surprise that they're the ones coming down to it, even though, I mean, people would also ask about housing. Surely there should be investment in housing at this point as well. So we'll just have to wait and see, really, um, the, is the money there? O- only the people who are looking at the books right now ca- can answer that. But we're looking at another winter of high electricity costs, uh, the diesel, petrol costs, very high. Food costs seem to be stabilising, but all of that feeds into your health, of course. You know, you, you need to be warm, you need to be able to eat. So all of these things have to be looked at, I suppose, um, as a network, really, there, there's nothing can be looked at in isolation anymore. Okay, Nate, we'll uh, hear what uh, funding uh, will be made to health tomorrow as well as every other government uh, department. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Neil Griffin, health correspondent with uh, the Irish Examiner. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. A text from Paddy Duffy who says, what I can't get my head around is uh, the attitude of successive Israeli governments towards Palestinians. They've treated the Palestinians with the same contempt that Hitler had for their ancestors. It's all wrong and in so many ways, says Paddy. Thank you indeed, Paddy, uh, for your text message. Uh, WhatsApp message uh, then from Deirdre, because uh, we played that clip from ABC News uh, of uh, Kim's uh, mother, uh, Gillian, uh, who really very upset obviously and uh, Deirdre saying uh, that um, it's heartbreaking to, 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 to listen to her and hopefully Kim will be found safe and well. I'm sure that's uh, something that many people would uh, agree with and uh, a feeling that has been echoed far and wide. Well thanks indeed for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning Deirdre. If you'd like to make comment on the programme as always we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041 You can text or WhatsApp 86 658 email michael at lmfm.ie 
Now to the story of a 61-year-old man who became unemployed and was told that he would receive a flat qualified adult job seekers payment of €366 a week. Okay, but it was means tested and €275 was deducted from that €366, which meant that he would receive €87 a week on the dole after 40 years working. It's an issue that was raised in the dole by independent TD for Louth and East Meath, Peter Fitzpatrick, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to Peter Fitzpatrick. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, It was means tested, and I'm sure we all know what that means, uh, but the reason that this money was deducted, this €275 deducted from what he would have been receiving otherwise, was because he'd been paying into a small private pension. Tell us a little bit more about this, if you would. Michael, uh, last Friday week in my constituency office, uh, this 61-year-old man came in to see me and his wife. She was 60. He's been working for the last 40 years. He was never redundant. He was heartbroken because every morning he used to go up and go to work. Now he, he, he can't go to work. Uh, what he done? He got a, he got a, he got a, he got a few pen redundancy money. He had a small mortgage. He paid off the small mortgage, and that left him with, with basically nothing. Uh, he had a small pension, and well, eleven hundred euros a month is two hundred and seventy-five euros a week. Some people might call it a small pension. Some people won't call it a small pension. Uh, so what he done was he's out there at the moment, and he's trying to find a job. And what he done then was he went down to the local uh, social welfare office, and he he, he applied for job seekers payments. So when you in the, in the job seeker payment, the general payment is uh, the, the main adults. The main would get 220 euros, and the dependent adults would get 146 euros. So that meant he was entitled to get 366 euros from the social welfare after work after working 40 years. Then, uh, uh, as we all know, job seekers uh, payment or uh, means tested. So they've done a means testing, and the man has been contributing to a pension all his life. His pension was, as I said, 275 euros. Uh, they, took, they took 269 euros off that 275 euros. So that means that the man, after working for the last 40 years, was better off by six years. Mm. I tackled, I tackled the, the, the Tornish Allaire last week and also the Minister for Finance. How come, the, the, what they're trying to do is, they're trying to encourage people, and rightfully so, because most people that come to the retirement age, of, or even over 60, uh, are, are dependent mainly on a state pension. But we all know a state pension, like the state pension payments at the moment now, if you're if you're an adult, it's 265 years total, and if you've got an adult dependent, it's 237.80. So you would get a total of 503 years ten if you're 65 years or over. And the, this man thought maybe at 61 years of age, he could not believe it that he that all he has at the moment is 366 years. Yeah. Now, Michael, I will be honest. I've known this man all my life. For him to come in and tell me he's been struggling for the last two or three years, it's got to the stage now is they panicking. Him and the wife are panicking in case the, the heating fails or something happens. And the simple wee thing is, what all family people is, like, he can't, the, the amount of money that he spends putting, putting food on the table, heating, maintenance, insurance. And the big thing too is, he's got, he's got a few grandchildren and they all come in every so week. And it's not only when you buy groceries, like, you know, you, you always want to give a wee, a wee bit of a treat. He can't even do that at the moment. Is Him and her are, are really, really low. I mean, I raised this in the door there last, last, last Thursday. Uh, uh, the Tornish was surprised, the Minister surprised. Mm. And I tell you, I mean, how are they surprised? That's, 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 that's the way it is. The, re- the, the reality of it is is that his pension is €87 Euro a, a week, but uh, it, it's worth €6. Euro. 
Yeah. No, Michael, as I said, yeah, he's getting, he paid, contributed to a pension, mm. and like everybody else, we're all doing it. Like, like, even since I, was, I mentioned on the Dáil Ella Tosa, the amount of people has contacted me, not only from County Live, which is surprising at the moment, all in the country, and they are all suffering the same thing at the moment. Mm. They've been out there, and like, even a small pension, some people have a pension of 100 euros or 150 euros, not there. Mm. They, and to be honest, these are people on small incomes yeah. that maybe, and, and the fairness, I just want to correct. I just want to correct myself. His pension would be worth 275 euros, wouldn't it? But the value of it, uh, because uh, of the deductions is six euro. Right. Because, Michael, in seven and wife, if they hadn't worked for the last 40 years and if both had to uh, uh, claim social welfare, they'd be over 100 euros a week better off than they would be now. After mm. them, after him. Like, she stayed at home to minor children and everything else. And, like, like you should not be penalised. But, Michael, I, I'm not saying, like, there's people out there that maybe put tens or hundreds of thousands of pensions. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about these these people who's just above the breadline over the last number of years, whose his, his, his wages were kind of small, but they felt as though that they, they were taking money of, of getting, of, of getting mm. to another age, and what they wanted to do was to try to help them, you know, to make a better life. Okay. And it's now it's now that people need that. All right, well, as you say, you raised it with the tarnish, and maybe we can hear just a, a little bit of what Michal Martin had to say. Obviously raising a more general issue through an individual case that has come to your constituency office, um, that highlights wider issues in terms of pension entitlements, pension contributions, um, job seeker loans. And I think you said the person was 61 years of age. Um, obviously, the department, I know, and he has worked for 40 years, to be fair, um, the Department of Social Protection is available to help in terms of sourcing alternative employment, if that's... Okay. Sorry? Okay. But it's there. Uh, it, it, is, it is there. It is there, and it should be there. And, I, I, if, and it, I'd certainly take the details off you but it is there and it, the office exists to try and help people to secure alternative employment. But also, I don't know the background in terms of the means test, sorry, in terms of the issues that were assessed or not assessed. Um, and you have said, I mean, normally the assessment involves the household's income, um, savings, shares, investments or property, apart from a person. So no, you've made it clear the person has no savings. Um, so uh, again, I, I will... Uh, revert to the Minister of Social Protection, but perhaps if you can send us the details so we could examine it in more detail afterwards, because I can't discuss individual cases here, obviously, in the floor of the house. I don't know the full background to it. All right, that's Michal Martin. Um, uh, and as he said, uh, the man that you're talking about, Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, would have received uh, job seekers' benefit for nine months after he became unemployed. What do you want to see change in relation to people like this? Uh, because uh, there appears to be a, a new me- measure coming down uh, the line in tomorrow's budget, which would result in people being paid 60% of their salaries if they become uh, unemployed, or up to €450 Euro a week. But that would only be for six months after losing your job. Michael, uh, I said earlier, well, Michael, when, when you're 66 years and over, you get 265 euros total, and for, your, for an adult independent, it's 237. So that means you get a, a total of 503 euros, 10 euros. I think that that, that that should be some kind of a landmark for everybody, Michael. If you if you're right there and you're working for 40 years, and and everybody is being encouraged to contribute towards a pension, my guarantee is an awful lot of your listeners listening to this program this morning will say that they can contribute maybe 20 or 30 years of hard-earned money every week. And when they realise that they, like, if they're unlucky to lose a job before they're 66 years of age, like, their money is going to be penalised. 
Like, in fairness, like, you know, the, the pension, if you contribute towards a pension, your pension is not being penalised. So when this man reaches the age of 66, that, that 275 years uh, uh, a week would, 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 be, would be well, well, well welcomed. But it's, it's now, I'm saying that these people are suffering. I think the government, like, they're totally giving an extra one, one, one year 40 on the, on the minimum wage. There's, a, my, there's an awful lot of people, I, I can't get over it. My constituency office, the amount of people coming in, mm. and these people, they, they, don't know, they, they don't know their rights, they don't know what they're entitled to, but they just can't survive anymore. Like, like I'm, I'm living at home now myself, and my wife's living at home there at the moment, just the two of us. And I'm telling you, Michael, is, uh, and we don't drink and we don't smoke. And the, the, the money that you spend every week in just simple wee things, like food, heating and mains, mortgage, it, it, it's, it's wrong. All people, that, especially when people get older, people that, and these are the people that have paid the taxes over the years and struggled over the years at the moment. Is. And they, these are the people that are very vulnerable and, and are kind of worried. That man that came in to me last fight with his wife, I honestly don't know how them two together. Mm. For the last three years, they really, really have struggled. So they're coming into the winter months, the panicking. I think the government's going to sit, sit down and I think something like 500 euros should be a minimum for a, 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 a couple together. You know, like, five, 500, like that extra 150 euros would be a massive, a massive uh, plus for these people at the moment. And, they, like, and they're going to be, they're coming back to me next week and I give them all the information to the, to the teachers. But I know, I know my hammy told, there's nothing we can do out there for them now. Okay. It's in black or white. You, you know, you get your, you get your, you get your general alliance, you get your dependent alliance. That's it. Bottom line, I just hope that the government and I, I, I spoke to as a member of the regional group, we got an opportunity mm. to speak to Pascal Donahue and uh, and and and, and uh, the other minister yeah, last week to, to talk about uh, about Mike, the finances coming. Mike and we did, McGrath, we did, yeah. Mike, Mike mm-hmm. McGrath. But we did, we did. Mm. Listen, all we're trying to say is these are the people who worked so hard all their lives. And these are the people that worry a lot. Yeah, well, uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons so many people will be listening intently to what Ministers uh, McGrath and Donoghue have to say tomorrow in the budget. Uh, While you're with us, uh, can I just ask you about the trains? uh, Because a a lot of people were interested in what uh, you were saying in the Dáil last week. Uh, We heard you speaking uh, with the Minister Eamon Ryan about trains being overcrowded on Friday's programme. Uh, The Minister assured you, though, change is a but you didn't seem too impressed with that. To be honest, yeah, I think the minister, my personal opinion of minister, minister Ryan is that he's totally and utterly out of touch. Every time I asked him a question, he kept going back to Dublin and the M50. I'm not talking about Dublin and the M50. There's, there's, there's more, like, I'm talking about the enterprise that leaves the dock every morning, going, going through the dock, drawn up to Dublin, and thousands of commuters in it. I'm talking about people coming home in the evening time from Connie Station, and they're not even checking the tickets. You, you go on, there's not even a seat. There's, there's pregnant women, there's elderly people standing up at the moment. It's, I'm talking something very, very simple. Like, nobody knows how many people are, on, are, are on, the, on the train. Like, to be honest, I would actually love myself uh, to actually go on the train myself. It's, but it's so unpredictable at the moment. It's, and it, it's mm. a long way from you go, go to work in the morning. Standing but up but the minister the did say that there's going to be extra capacity and dart services, uh, and that will change that situation of overcrowding. Yeah, he did say there was going to be another 41 new ICOs, these, these uh, rail cards. He also said that, uh, that, uh, that, that the enterprise fleet's going to be changing everything mm. else. But all that's but good, I, isn't I, it? 
yeah, but yeah, Michael, I did. But this, Michael, this this is going off the last number of years. We've been told that uh, these new, these new rail cars are coming on board since from last September. There's still no sign of coming on board. And even I'm sorry, and I I kind of hit him hard because in his budget he didn't spend a hundred million there on on, on transport at the moment. So we we'll asked him like for a minister coming into a budget. You know, a senior minister in cabinet not spending his allocation. It, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, I, I went from the dog there last toast. I left the dog at six o'clock in the morning. It took me twenty minutes to get to the dog. I up and the tall bit and draw another traffic jam. And from Dunabed in into Million Square, it took me nearly two hours. Mm. Like the amount of traffic on the road, I think it's actually it got worse. And we are trying to encourage people to get off. We need we need to improve our rail service. We need to bus, uh, improve our bus service. Bus service. We just need to get. And I, I for one would be delighted to go on a bus or go on a train and everything as well. But at the moment, it's just not feasible. Okay. But I, I just I, I just personally think that that even mine, the answers to give me, I think he just kept repeating himself, repeating himself in the moment. It's, Something should be done. That enterprise, that that, that was only one consistent email. I, I mm-hmm. think I give out. Okay. But the amount of people, the amount of people coming to make consistency of it, complaining about the enterprise is only oh, like it's a, an awful long distance to travel. Standing, as you say, Peter. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the program today, Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Joint Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying has uh, been formed to consider and make recommendations for legislative and policy change relating to a statutory right to assist a person to end his or her life and to receive such assistance on a statutory basis. The bishops of Ireland are objecting to any change in the law relating to assisted dying and in a statement they're appealing, they say in the strongest possible terms to politicians to respect the integrity of healthcare as a service to life from conception until natural death. Let's hear more. Bishop Kevin Doran, who's the Bishop of Elfin and Chair of the Bishop's Council for Life joins us now. Good morning to you, Bishop Doran, and thank you indeed. Uh, Do you uh, object to the establishment of uh, this committee and the work that it's doing in exploring the feelings that so many people have that they should be able to choose their time and means of dying? Well, I don't know how many people, uh, but I suppose uh, obviously an Oireachtas committee can convene to talk about anything, but it would seem to me that with all the difficulties that face our society, uh, talking about how to end people's lives um, seems to be very low down the agenda from my point of view. Um, The responsibility of government is to serve the common good. It's not just a religious question, although there are religious dimensions to it, but really, uh, you know, the society needs to very clearly uh, convey that the life of every people, of every person from, from, from conception to natural death it has, has a value. And the law shouldn't make people feel that uh, their life is a burden rather than a blessing. Mm. Uh, what ends up happening here really is once once a law of that kind is introduced, and we've seen it in other countries, the, the, the sick and the elderly end up feeling that they should just do the decent thing and go away and die. Right. Uh, if people feel that the short life ahead of them, uh, because uh, we're talking about people uh, who would have a, a limited time span ahead uh, that uh, their death would be imminent they have a terminal illness and if uh, they believe that death would be a a blessing uh, and that that short 
period uh, which would see them end their lives uh, would be torturous. Uh, should we not listen to them? Well, I think it's undoubtedly the time of uh, chronic or terminal illness can be enormously difficult and challenging, both for those who are sick and also for their families. But um, our experience as pastors tells us that it can also be a very privileged time uh, because I think faced with their own mortality, um, many people, both young and old, discover within themselves uh, hidden reserves of faith, hope and love, which can often be an inspiration to those who accompany them. And, and, And family members, you know, who I suppose like the Good Samaritan stop uh, and spend time with the person who is sick. Certainly, it involves a huge, um, uh, you know, emotional energy to sit at the bedside of somebody or to or to be with somebody in that situation. But it it, it also places a, a relationship uh, on a very different level. And sometimes there can be opportunities to express gratitude that has never been expressed, or indeed to heal wounded relationships that that have been uh, left untended for for a long time not everybody would uh, agree though oh no i accept that not everybody would agree and none of us (coughs) listening or discussing this issue know uh, because we won't know until our time comes no i mean none of us uh, you know and we've acknowledged this suppose none of us knows uh you know how what our emotional response will be to serious illness and that that's that's certainly the case but the, the difficulty about it you see is it's it, while while people will disagree on all sorts of things it, the, the 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 law affects everybody i mean people will certainly say okay well sure you know nobody's being forced uh to end their own lives but what what happens as i said is that that you know they there become there comes uh an emotional pressure on people once something like this uh, is available uh, to feel that well wouldn't I be doing the kinder thing for my family if I just uh, agreed to go away and die and and um, the uh, the other side of it is that um, any law on assisted suicide presupposes that somebody else is going to be asked to participate in this and so there are huge issues around the respect for the uh, the freedom of conscience and, and the whole ethos of healthcare, which is a service to life mm. and, and is not, you know, in any sense intended to be or oriented towards okay. um, ending life. Okay, uh, I'm not sure that that would be the case, Bishop, because we would be talking about health uh, care providers uh, who would be administering the drugs that would uh, be uh, taken by uh, the person who wishes to end their own life. No, absolutely, but uh, then is, uh, yeah, it, when but you're talking talk about, about health care, but you're talking about them as health care providers. Mm, yeah. Putting an end to someone's life is not health care. Mm. Okay, but we're not talking about uh, people in hospital wards. It would be a speciality and it would be seen as health care. Yeah, well, they're doctors and nurses, you know, who who are committed by mm. virtue of their profession mm. to to be, you know, to serve the 
to serve life. Mm. But you're talking about people, Dan, uh, who may feel a, a burden. Uh, if safeguards could be put in place to prevent that sort of thing happening and that uh, assistance in ending your life would only be made under very specific circumstances, would you still... Well, but that's what, they, that's what they say all the time, and I suppose that's what they said also about the abortion legislation, which they're now trying to liberalise again. You know, I, I mean, I don't think that... Um, in any sense that, that you know is credible um once once you uh, convic- once you concede that somebody has the right to take their life then that right to take their life becomes uh, uh, a right and then becomes an obligation on others to to facilitate it that that that's what happens we conceded um, a long time ago that people have a, a right to end their lives didn't we yes but not a right to impose on other people the duty to assist them in doing so well, it's not. I'm not sure imposing uh, is the objective. Uh, quite the opposite. It's to facilitate somebody uh, who may. No, be but if you if you consider what exactly what is being said in terms of uh, of say the very recent uh, abortion legislation, which is the same thing at the other end of the scale, um, there's huge pressure on healthcare professionals, doctors, and nurses. Uh, that that they they must, uh, in some sense or other, facilitate. Uh, the decision to end life, and it, it will be exactly the same when it comes to when it comes to uh, um, uh, mm. assisted suicide. Okay, there are many people who uh, want to end their life because of a terminal illness and uh, a fear of how they'd end their days otherwise. Uh, and uh, there are many people who have done that. Uh, do you believe that uh, they are wrong? Uh, do you believe that they have sinned? Well, I mean, I think from a Christian point of view, which is uh, obviously a particular worldview, obviously not everybody shares that, but from a Christian point of view, human life is a gift that we hold in trust. Uh, and the fact that we hold it in trust, like trustees of anything else, it doesn't give us the right to decide when it should end. Uh, obviously, none of us is in a position to judge uh the spiritual state of another person and you know um we we often talk even in the case of of suicide uh we 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 talk about how you know people sometimes make those decisions under extreme uh pressure or in extreme distress and it's not for us to judge the you know the the eternal situation if you like someone who has done that but what we're talking about here is what is for the common good and any society, I think, should be trying to help people to accompany those who are in terminal illness. And, you know, the uh, people mm-hmm. who work in hospice care and in palliative care, including many chaplains, uh, you know, provide a huge service to life, accompanying people at a time when uh, treatment is no longer possible, but when healing is still possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been in that space myself, both of with course. my own family mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and with my own parishioners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've seen the difference it can make. Uh, but unfortunately, our culture today doesn't tolerate any inconvenience or disruption of our routine. And, and, and that's part of what makes any kind of suffering intolerable. Okay, well, we're talking about severe suffering, I would think, in fairness, Bishop Doran, uh, that people can't contemplate uh, and people do end their own lives. Uh, And uh, I guess it could also be argued that we're criminalising people who believe that they are doing the right thing. 
Well, I'm not. I, I'm not talking about uh, criminalisation. Right. I'm talking but, uh, about, uh, as the law stands, but as I'm the law stands, I'm talking about but, the state well, making a cri- proposal to, ju- to, to, to make it part of the to, to change the law to change the law, which makes it a criminal act to assist somebody to die. Uh, so we are criminalising people. The law criminalises people who assist others to die. I think that's the point. If you understand me. Yes, well, I mean, I, I, the, the alternative is that, that the law says uh, that it's okay to take the life of another person. And, and as I said, once you do that, uh, it's very hard to place a limit on that. And, and, and we've, seen, we've seen that in the way assisted suicide has developed in, in uh, many other societies and where eventually it, it has been, and, and not that, slowly either very quickly really extended to include people with intellectual disability and uh, life limiting conditions whose continued existence is perceived to be a burden on society and that's the risk that we take. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks a lot Michael. Thank you very much indeed that's uh, Bishop Kevin Doran who's uh, the Bishop of Elfin and Chair of the Bishop's Council for Life. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, It really is staggering to think that each year 12 million girls, this is minors under the age of 18, 12 million girls are married uh, every single year. This is according to a report called Young and Married uh, that has been released by World Vision International. Tamara Tutniewicz Gorman is uh, the Director of Child Rights Policy, Advocacy and External Engagement with World Vision International. She joins us on the line from Cyprus. I think there may be a slight delay in the line, but thank you very much indeed to Tamara for joining us on the programme this morning. It is a shocking statistic. Uh, There's a a little girl behind each one of uh, the people who figure in that statistic of 12 million. Uh, Maybe you could tell us a a little bit more about your research and indeed your report, if you would, please. Yes, good morning, Michael. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak about this very important research. So... um, We have done a lot of research on child marriage in the past almost 30 years, looking at different aspects of this phenomenon. And so World Vision commissioned this research in four countries two years ago, specifically wanting to find out from girls themselves and the girls that are already married, what were their experiences with child marriage? How do they end up married? How do they feel now? Um, what is their ability to continue education, to get employment, how they're coping with this issue. And it really illuminated their, our understanding, particularly when it comes to girls who were married at a very young age, on how their look, lives look like and what we need to do in order to make them better. Okay, and you make this uh, public uh, just in advance of International Day of uh, the Girl, which will be on Wednesday of uh, this week. Uh, And uh, you talk about uh, some of the individual girls who make up this 12 million. Uh, You uh, refer to one girl, for instance, instance, uh, who's 18 years of age. She's a three and a half year old son uh, and is six months pregnant. Life very different, I'm sure, for that particular girl than little girls here in Ireland, for example. Very different, very different. Um, we find that the younger the girls marry, uh, they have their experience, they feel more sad, they feel more worthless, 
they have a less decision, uh, less say in um, decision about marriage. In fact, if you think about it, more than 50% of girls have no no right in decision of who they marry or whether they're even going to get married. Uh, they very soon get their children, so they're focused on child care, and they never get a chance to continue their education. If you read our report, um, you will find a story about Fatima, who was pulled out from her school, and she has never managed to do anything uh, in terms of her education. And all of these girls that we talk to, they always have one regret, which is that they had to leave the school, that they have to move from their families, and that they are not able to live through the aspirations they had. Right, and people can read your report on the World Vision Ireland mm-hmm. website. Young uh, mm-hmm. and Married is uh, the title of uh, the report. Uh, but there's also concerns uh, about uh, how these girls, uh, as very young girls, uh, can become uh, essentially mm-hmm. sex slaves to their husbands. Well, we have found that um, that girls who married young are five times more likely to experience sexual violence in their marriage than girls who are not married in these circumstances. In fact, in Tanzania, particularly 30% of married girls that we talked to told us that they have experienced sexual violence. This is a, a, we knew about this, but, but it is really hard to see this when the girls tell you about this problem. You know, what is also fascinating is that they know in their communities that there is help available, but they are really afraid to go and to talk to anybody about this because of the stigma and shame that is going to be associated if they disclose this kind of a violence. And one more thing I want to share with this. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go. One more thing you want to share. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say one more thing on this. You know, when you ask parents... Uh, why they are marrying their daughters, they often say it is because we are afraid they're going to be sexually abused. We are afraid they're going to get pregnant. In fact, uh, they are doing this because they think they are protecting them. But this is very sadly not true, as you can see in our research. Okay, the delay in the line uh, stopped me from mm-hmm. asking the question, but you preempted it because I was going to ask you what the, uh, is at the heart of it. Uh, I was wondering, in actual fact, if it was something else, uh, rather than protecting uh, girls from sexual predators, is poverty a, a, an element in all of this? Yes, yes. Uh, we find that many, if uh, the girls tell us the stories of their families, uh, struggling with poverty, struggling with um, uh, lack of income, struggling with lack of jobs, and with many children to feed. And therefore, uh, easiest option sometimes is to marry off the daughter to um, let her go so they have less children to feed, or in some cases they will get the dowry back so they will have more income for the family, at least for the short period of time. So this is really sad to see that even at this time, at this uh, um, time in our history, we still have girls who are married off and experience really terrible violence 
because of poverty and because their family can take care of them. Okay. Um, this is a, a long way from the lives most of us live in, in this country. At least uh, it would be illegal uh, for a lot of these marriages to take place. Uh, what can we do here? Uh, I mean, nobody, I'm sure, listening to us uh, agrees and would like to help uh, to bring about a, an end to, to, way, to the way young girls uh, are, are being treated uh, by being married off so young. Is there anything that people listening can do to help? Well, people who are listening can actually help us raise awareness that this is a really serious problem and that the girls uh, are suffering from this, not just because of poverty, but also because of the harmful traditional norms and practices that people uh, believe in. That people believe that they, the, the girls are not as valuable as boys, that they need to protect the family honor, and therefore they marry them. And, and, and destine them to this destiny. So people can raise awareness that this is actually a crime against children. Children should not be married until 90, until uh, they, as long as they are children, until 18 years old. Uh, they can also um, urge uh, their leaders to speak to the leaders of other countries when they are in, in rooms together to draw their attention to this problem and to the fact that we have a lot of laws that are prohibiting child marriage, but they are not implemented. There's too many exceptions. Uh, too many times this is left to the decision of parents. Well, it shouldn't be. And also we can do all more collectively to support the countries and places and communities even through the work, by supporting the work we are doing and other organizations, um, which are creating sustainable livelihoods for these girls, which are helping continue their education, mm. and which are also working on their empowerment. Because these girls are not helpless. They, are, they have very strong ideas about who they want to be and what they want to achieve. And they really need our support. Okay. And uh, listeners can also sponsor a child uh, through World Vision Ireland's website uh, as well. Tamara, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Tamara Tutniewicz Gorman, the Director of Child Rights Policy Advocacy and External Engagement with World Vision International, speaking to us ahead of the International Day of the Girl, which is on Wednesday. Michael in Navin, uh, thank, thank you for your text. He says, Michael, I'm a Christian, but we talk about life being a gift. But the gift can be argued that no one should have to suffer in the extent that some people have to. I watched my father reduced to a core over 15 months after taking a stroke. He had no hope of recovery and you wouldn't have put an animal through the pain he went through. That memory torments me and there needs to be legislation now for terminally ill patients for assisted dying. The doctors were advising no intervention if he got any complications to try and speed up the process. This was even worse to watch. The Catholic religion needs to adapt a more empathetic approach, says Michael. Thank you indeed. Somebody else in touch uh, saying, totally agree with Peter Fitzpatrick. You're better off never working. Uh, we to Jerry and Wilkinson saying my opinion is Hamas and Hezbollah are just terrorists like the IRA and UDA and they definitely deserve whatever the Israeli army has planned for them. Thank you Jerry. I'm sure they have a lot planned. That's our programme for today though. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing we'll see you for our next programme. Tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.